I'm a bit of a history buff, and, and when you study history, you discover there are a lot of famous deaths in history. You know, we think about the deaths of great people like uh, John F. Kennedy, President of the United States, Marie Antoinette, or Queen Cleopatra. And, and while these famous deaths have ignited debates and inspired conspiracy theories and have become legends in their own right, we never refer to the assassination or the guillotining. Maybe that's because that's just hard to say. We never refer to the poisoning. If you just said those things, but it would be incomprehensible what you're talking about. But even in this increasingly secular age, if you refer to the crucifixion, more people than not will know what you're talking about. There's something in the strange death of the man identified as the Son of God that continues to command such special attention. This death, this execution above all others continues to have a ripple effect around the world. Of no other death in human history can that be said. The cross of Jesus stands alone. And while in Roman times there were thousands of crucifixions, it is only the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that is remembered as having any significance at all, let alone world-transforming significance. Jesus' death on a Roman cross and the suffering that He endured have always and will always offer us a glimpse of His greater glory as He bore the weight of the world's sin. And this morning we're going to focus on just a specific moment in the crucifixion of our Lord, but I don't want us to underestimate the great suffering that Jesus endured before He was nailed to that Roman cross. Jesus' suffering began long before He was betrayed or denied or abandoned by His disciples. In fact, it was first during Jesus' agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that He began to feel the weight and pain of our sin. Just picture it. As Jesus was contemplating that night all that He was about to endure, He repeatedly fell to the ground, wrestling in prayer with the Father's will. And His praying was so intense that Jesus suffered a rare but medically a documented phenomenon called hematidrosis, or blood sweat. Jesus was under such great emotional strain that the small capillaries inside of His sweat glands burst and His blood mixed in with His sweat. Later that night, Jesus would suffer the first of many blows in the house of the high priest Caiaphas. And he would go on to experience more physical abuse as the guards blindfolded him and taunted him, spitting at him and striking him in the face and asking him, saying, prophesy, tell us which one of us hit you. But then early on Friday morning came the most painful of Jesus' pre-crucifixion experiences. The scourging or the flogging at the command of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, now, this Roman scourging or flogging was also nicknamed the halfway death. First, Jesus would have been stripped naked. He would have been chained to a post such that his, his arms were spread and his backside was made into the most prominent target that they could make it. The soldier who drew flogging duty that day used a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into the ends of them such that as Jesus was whipped, those balls left deep 
contusions, and after repeated beatings, those deep bruises would have burst. The whip also had pieces of sharp bone and rock embedded in it so that when the, when the guard pulled back for the next whip, it would actually tear at Jesus' flesh. Some documented Roman scourgings refer to bodies so mangled that the ribs and even the spine, the backbone was exposed. Most scourging went from the neck down to the back of the thighs. And it would tear beyond skin deep into his muscles. We know that a lot of people died from scourging alone. They never even made it to crucifixion. Most victims went into deep shock from the pain and the blood loss. Now imagine that Jesus is suffering all of this after he experienced hematridosis, that, that blood sweat, which would have left his skin already fragile and sensitive. And then he endured that scourging. And if this wasn't enough, the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus by putting a purple Roman robe on him and, 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 and sinking a crown of thorns into his brow and then taking a mock scepter and hitting him on the head with it and bowing down, saying, Hail to the King of the Jews. I find myself imagining that after all of that, crucifixion must have been a mercy. Anything to end such cruel violence and public shame. And maybe for some people, the cross was a welcome end to this torture. But Jesus welcomed His cross. Jesus embraced His cross, not for the sake of His own mercy, but for the sake of ours. As we consider the first moments after Jesus was nailed to that cross, we get only a small glimpse of what He went for us. The story also reveals not only the benefits that His sacrifice brings, and we've sung about them already. We focus on the benefits of the bring, that, that Jesus' death on the cross brings to us, but the story also reveals the demands that the cross places upon us. So let's read this brief account in John 19, beginning in verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, or in Greek, Calvary. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This undergarment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. The story begins here in verse 16 with the crucifixion of Christ. Now, it's fascinating how very little the Gospels tell us about the actual act of crucifixion. And think about it. Jesus' death on the cross is the fulcrum upon which the redemptive story of the Bible hinges. 
And when you consider how much the apostles preached about it, how much Paul wrote about it, when you think about all the songs and doctrines and and, and hymns and works of art and sermons that have been devoted to it, the actual act of crucifying Jesus commands no more than a few words in one verse in each of the Gospels. Now, why is that? Why is there not just this lengthy description of crucifixion in the Gospels? Well, we have to understand that for the original audience that these Gospels were written for, they understood all too well what crucifixion was like. If I were to talk to you today about somebody who was going to be executed by electric chair or lethal injection, or if I was telling you that somebody was hung or they were, they were executed by firing squad, just my mentioning those has likely drawn a picture to your mind, right? You don't need me to spell out the details because we're familiar with what that means. The same was true for people in Jesus' day. In the same way, little is said about Jesus' torturous journey to the cross because, again, such processions were as common as funeral processions. But based on what we know from the Gospels and from history, Jesus was more than likely placed in the center of a company of four Roman soldiers. The crossbeam would have been placed across his shoulders like a yoke. The crossbeam probably weighed around 100 pounds. Now remember... Jesus' back and shoulders have already been torn to pieces by the scourging when that crossbeam is laid on his shoulders. Jesus is already weak with fatigue, thirst, and blood loss. But much like Isaac carrying the wood upon which his father intended to sacrifice him as he went up Mount Moriah, Jesus bore the very wood upon which he would die, fully trusting in his father's plan. Customarily, the man to be crucified was led to the site of his execution by the longest, most circuitous route through the city so that everybody could see that crime does not pay. And out in front would have been a Roman officer carrying a sign that let everybody know the crime for which this man was going to be killed. And that sign we know for Jesus read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And Jesus was so weakened by his experience that he couldn't even finish the journey on his own. And so one of the bystanders, a man named Simon of Cyrene, who came with his sons, Rufus and Alexander, they were just coming into into the city to celebrate Passover. And here all of a sudden he's yanked out of the crowd. Jesus' crossbeam is thrown on his shoulders and he's forced to carry that with Jesus the rest of the way up Calvary. And it was there at the place of execution that Jesus was laid upon that crossbeam. Long spikes, probably seven inches long, would have been driven through his wrists. And then the crossbar hoisted into place on the vertical pole. Jesus' legs would have been dangling through all of this until finally a block was placed and his ankles were put against it. His knees were turned to the side to to twist his torso and, and, and his feet would have been nailed to that cross, giving him just enough bend in the knees so that he began the horrible process of having to pull and push himself up to take every breath. And even with these few details, we can begin to visualize the horror that Jesus endured for us. But can you believe that all of this physical agony, none of this was the greatest source of Jesus' misery? All the physical torment was a shadow of grief and despair compared to the wrath that Jesus endured, the wrath of a holy God poured out on Jesus, the Son of God, 
for our sakes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Nothing could have prepared Jesus for the singular moment when God the Son became for the first and only time in all of eternity past or future separated from God the Father. And this was so horrible that Jesus, who never opened His mouth mouth to complain or condemn anyone through this whole process, Jesus finally opened His mouth and He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? It wasn't for the physical agony that Jesus cried out, but the spiritual horror of drinking the cup of God's wrath, the cup that you and I deserved, the cup that Jesus willingly, obediently, and lovingly drank for us. This is how we know that Jesus loves us. Reflecting on that excruciating ordeal, and by the word, by the way, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. The only way they could explain the kind of pain and agony someone experienced on a Roman cross was to create a word, the word excruciating. So excruciating was this ordeal C.S. Lewis wrote, Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. John is careful to tell us that two others were crucified with Jesus. Look back at verse 18. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. So if, as C.S. Lewis described it, if the cross is a diagram of His love, then the positioning of the cross is a diagram of how His love is given to the world. Jesus' enemies, the imperial Roman authorities, and the Jewish religious leaders, they intended to position Jesus between two convicted robbers as one final act of disgrace. And it's entirely possible that these two men that Jesus was crucified with were the accomplices of the murderous revolutionary named Barabbas. You may remember Barabbas. You know, Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus. He didn't find Jesus guilty of any crime worthy of crucifixion, so he tried to find a way to get out of having Jesus killed. So it was customary on Passover for Pilate to present two criminals, and the Jewish people could pick one of them to stay the execution. So Pilate thought, well, I'll put Jesus out here. Jesus, who just a week ago, people were welcoming him into town and celebrating him. I'm going to put Jesus up here against the worst criminal I have in the prison right now, Barabbas. A robber, a murderer, a zealot, a rabble-rouser. I'm going to put him out here. Certainly the people will choose to let Jesus go free. But as we know, the crowd cried for Barabbas to be set free and for Christ to be crucified, and so now Jesus hung in Barabbas' place between his buddies. They reserved for Jesus the cross upon which the worst of the worst was supposed to die. But instead of disgracing Christ, they actually fulfilled what Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 53, because Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, for He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So let's go with Lewis's idea of the cross as a diagram of God's love. Look at this with me. Look in your notes. You'll see the three crosses there. Underneath the first and third cross, I want you to write the word in. Write the word in underneath 
those two crosses. But underneath the middle cross, I want you to write the words, not in. Not in. See, those two thieves who died with Jesus had sin in them. Just as every human being since Adam and Eve has had sin in them. Just as you and I were born into this world with sin in us. But Jesus Christ, as we already heard in 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus Christ had no sin in Him. He was the sinless Son of God. Now let's put over that first and third cross the word on. The word on. Now what does this mean? It means that these men were being punished by the state for their crimes. Their sins were being laid on them. If you or I, either one, were caught breaking the law, we would have sin in us because we'd be guilty of being lawbreakers, but we would also have the penalty of our sin on us. We'd have to pay the price for breaking the law. But let's also write the word on over that middle cross. Because Jesus bore your sins and mine. There was no sin in Him, but our sin was laid on Him. The wrath we deserved was poured out on Jesus. He paid our penalty. So I want you on that third cross, whichever one you want, left or right, doesn't matter. Pick one of those two crosses. I want you to circle that word or scratch out that word on over one of those two crosses and draw an arrow to the cross of Christ. Because you see, one of those two thieves we know turned in faith to Jesus Christ. He praised Christ as being the sinless Son of God. He confessed his own sin and threw himself upon the mercy of Jesus. And when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation... Our sin is canceled and it rests upon Jesus Christ because of His grace and by virtue of our faith in Him. But the other thief, the other thief never trusted in Jesus. And so he died eternally condemned by his own sin. He bore his own penalty. This is the diagram of God's love for us. The call to Calvary is first and foremost a call to salvation. So ask yourself, upon upon which of those two crosses do you hang? Ask yourself, have I placed my faith in Jesus so that the penalty of my sin rests on Him? Or am I bearing the penalty of my sin myself? You can't answer that question in the affirmative with certainty. I invite you at the end of the service today to come and receive the free gift of God's grace. Jesus has already carried your sins upon the cross. If you would but accept His free gift of forgiveness and eternal life, it is there for the taking. If you don't know Him today, I pray you won't leave this place until you know that you know that Jesus has paid the price and you've received His forgiveness. This is the diagram of God's love and what His love cost Him. The Son of God hanging by His arms, fighting to raise Himself up for just one more breath and then another and then another until His short, shallow breaths couldn't keep up any longer and the carbon dioxide was building up in His system and turning into carbonic acid in His blood. 
Until all of that stress and all of that strain and that labored breathing with the hypovolemic shock of so much blood loss eventually led Jesus to have a heart attack and He died. This is the diagram of God's love. Yet the true depth and cost of Christ's love for us isn't found in His physical suffering on the cross. It's found in His willingness to bear our sin and shame. To suffer, to suffer separation, even if but for a moment, from His holy and loving eternal Father. Oh, how He loves us! If we believe in Christ like that repentant thief did, Jesus will exchange His righteousness for our sins. His death for our life. His separation from the Father for our reconciliation with the Father. We gain life simply by faith in Him. That is Christ's offer. That is the call to Calvary. It's a call to salvation. But John's story goes on. It not only describes the crucifixion of Christ, but the coronation of Christ. Jesus wasn't just crucified. He was crowned upon that cross. I mentioned before that Pilate prepared a notice and fastened it over the cross of Jesus that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And as John points out, because Calvary was near the main road into Jerusalem, lots of people would have seen this passing by. And that's why it was written not only in Aramaic, but in Latin and in Greek. And on Jesus' enemies, the Jewish religious leaders, they didn't like this. It's kind of hard for them to look up at Jesus and gloat when they see Pilate's sign gloating right back at them. So they went and complained to Pilate. And they repeatedly asked him to change what was written on the sign to say that Jesus claimed he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate wouldn't budge. In fact, when Pilate answers, what I've written, I've written in the Greek New Testament, that's written in the perfect tense. He's literally saying, what I have written, I have written, and it will always remain written. He wasn't going to change a thing. In disgust, Pilate emphasized the permanence of this statement. Once more, what Jesus' enemies meant as a, dis as a disgrace became a fulfillment of prophecy and a confession of Jesus' true identity. Think about it. During His infancy, wise men from the east came and, and they heralded Him as King. In Matthew chapter 2 it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born? What? King of the Jews. We saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. On Palm Sunday, we remember how the crowds welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. John tells us in John twelve thirteen they took palm branches went out to meet Him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is who? The King of Israel. And then Jesus Himself before Pilate bore witness to His kingdom in John 18. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. But if it were, My servants would fight to prevent My arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And now this royal title is displayed above the exalted head of the true King of Israel. But Jesus isn't just the promised Messiah, the Son of David, and the King of Israel. 
No, His rule is eternal. His rule is universal. And someday Jesus will return as the King in all of His glory, as Revelation 19.16 says, revealing to all the world that He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. That's why it's so significant that Jesus' title was written above His head, not only in the language of the Jews in Aramaic, but in the language of the Roman Empire, in Latin and in Greek. Christ's rule began on a Roman cross, which is why every New Testament reference to Christ's dominion is always accompanied by a reference to His cross. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, it says He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Why? For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile Himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And how did He do this? By making peace through His blood shed on a cross. Or in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is also the call to Calvary. Yes, it's a call to salvation, but it's also a call to submission. We must answer the call of Jesus not only as our Savior, but as our Lord and King. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross demands our absolute submission because Jesus didn't die to make make mean people nice. He didn't die to help you overcome bad habit. He didn't die so you could have your best life now. No, Jesus died on that cross to make dead people alive, to destroy the power of sin and to break those chains and set us free. He came to give His life for us so that He could live His life through us. And what better life to have than to have the giver of life live life through you. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The call to Calvary is a call to take up your own cross and follow Him. Take up your own cross. Now that means something a little bit more when you understand the kind of agonizing, horrifying death awaited a person who carried their own cross. To take up your cross and follow Jesus means that you are willing to die to sin and self. In Luke 14, 27, Jesus said, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then in 10, 38, And anyone who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. We must have a spirit of submission and commitment to Christ's rule in our lives. He must be our Savior and our King. It's a package deal. You can't have one without the other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, true grace is not cheap. See, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Baptism without discipline. Communion without confession. 
And Bonhoeffer then describes the costly grace of Calvary like this. He said, costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of His Son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. We must not forget the cross was real. The whip, the thorns, the nails were all too real. As was each labored breath and every pounding beat of the broken heart of God upon that old rugged cross. But above all, it's the undying love of God that was and is most real of all. And the call to Calvary is just as real. The call not only to believe and receive, but the call to carry and follow. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, have you answered the call to Calvary? Because as Isaac Watts wrote, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, I must not only marvel at God's love, but I must surrender to His Lordship because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Have you given your all to the Christ of Calvary? Have you answered the call to salvation? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Have you given Him your sins and received from Him forgiveness and grace? Have you been made a new creation by the love of God through Jesus Christ? If you've never surrendered yourself to Him and received that gift of salvation, I pray you would do it this morning. But Christian, how much daily are you answering the call to surrender yourself to His Lordship? Are you living in submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Are you willing to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow Him? There may be some of us in here who need to kneel down at that cross in confession that we have tried to put down His cross. We have tried to live for our own glory and our own comforts and our own conveniences instead of answering His call to follow Him. So Christian, this morning, do you need to take up your cross? Whatever God has spoken to you this morning, I pray you'll obey Him. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, Father, we've heard the story so many times. And as the saying says, familiarity breeds contempt, or at the very least, apathy. Father, it's so very easy for us to take all this for granted. And I pray that this morning, through this message, through Your Word, through the songs, we've been able to pause and to really contemplate what Jesus Christ suffered for us on Calvary. What He endured for us that Thursday night and that Friday morning so long ago. But those wounds that are still visible 
in His risen body and will be visible for all of eternity. Oh, the love of God displayed for us. I pray, Father, if there's anyone in this room that has any doubt in their heart where they stand with You, that they would come this morning in repentance and in faith to receive Your love and Your grace. If there's any believer in this room, any disciple of Jesus today that has been faltering in their following of the Lord, I pray they would come this morning in brokenness and pour out their heart before You and rededicate their lives to You as followers of Jesus. If there's anybody here today that You are calling to unite with this church to add their gifts, to add their unique talents and perspectives to this body to help us carry out the Great Commission, I pray You would lead them to do so this morning. May we be obedient to your word. In the name of Jesus we pray.